Hey there, I am Barb Higgins, and this is A Thousand Tiny Steps. In this podcast, I share my stories of love, loss, triumph, and tragedy as I continue to retrace my steps onto what led to the death of my daughter, Molly. By doing so, I hope to not only help myself, but to bring purpose and possibility to those who listen. If you are ready to laugh, cry, shake your head in disbelief, then tie, buckle, face up, or slip on your shoes, and join me as we begin our thousand tiny steps. Hey everybody, Barb Higgins here, welcoming you to episode 130, 130 of A Thousand Tiny Steps. So today, I'm going to share with you a continuation of one of my struggles and what has been helpful for me. Any spiritual mentor or wellness coach will encourage you to have a morning routine that makes you feel good. And most of them will encourage a morning routine that is a proponent of what they teach. So a spiritual mentor will will suggest that you start your day with prayer and meditation and reflection. And a CrossFit coach might say, get up and grab your water bottle and do 10 minutes of easy cardio, go for a walk or sit on the bike or whatever. We all have different ways that we're taught to start our day. And I am the master. I am the poster child for the definition of insanity, which according to AA is trying to do the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. Since I did spiritual mentoring with the fabulous Karen Kenny in 2018, I've been really, really feeling like a failure because I can't put together this thoughtful yoga pose, prayer-filled morning routine. My mornings are pretty inconsistent and not always up to me as to how they go. I have a little teeny tiny human and I can't always navigate around his needs. They have to come first. So sometimes he'll sleep until eight and I'll have three hours to myself and other times he's up with me at 5.15. So there's that piece of it. But even before Jack, I don't wake up and immediately think I want to say a prayer. It just isn't how I am. I wake up and I want to pee. I want the taste of coffee on the, on the back of my throat. You know, like I have, I have ways that I start. I always start my morning with a prayer. There's a beautiful morning prayer in the Baha'i faith. And I say it every morning as I look out my Southeast windows, either to the pitch black or to the rising sun. I say it every day. It's just one, one prayer. And if I can't say it with my coffee in my hand in front of the window, I say it in the shower or while I'm peeing or you know, while I'm driving somewhere, but I never, ever don't say it. So I have a very loose spiritual, daily spiritual practice, right? I'm doing something every morning, but I'm constantly trying to reinvent these things. And so I paid for this app, like a two week trial, which I'm going to cancel it. And it's called me. And it's not a bad app. You can track your food, you can track your exercise. And it has you do these 10 minutes of somatic exercises every day. So I've done them every morning. And As I do them, I realize I could teach this. I could make my own app about these things and how to start your day. So I've canceled the subscription, but I did did go through all the workouts and really look at what they were and what they encompassed. And really, they're no different than yoga. They're no different than meditation. It's all that easy centering and just paying attention to yourself. Well, as much as an app might make me do it every day, after five or six times, I'm like, okay, you know, I'm not getting anything out of this anymore. This, you know, so... So I've canceled the app, but it got me into thinking about my morning routine and what really works for me. And what I've noticed is that I'm in this huge learning phase right now. I'm thinking of getting my CrossFit level three. I really should finish my, no, I really shouldn't. I would really like to finish my doctorate. All I have is half of the coursework and a dissertation, which is a lot, but you know, I'd love to have a PhD or an EDD and I am close to doing it. And I get, I get antsy to learn. I love, I just like learning. 
I go on Netflix and Hulu and Amazon Prime and Paramount, and I've I've become sort of addicted to streaming a series. So I just streamed a, a series. It took me several days. I did this while I was sick. Switched at birth. It was way before Molly died that this was popular in like 2013. But it was just an interesting story of two families realizing they have each other's daughters and how we define children and who belongs to who. And it was it was a really well done series. There, were, there was a lot in it that I enjoyed. Now, it was like five seasons and each season had like 30 episodes. So I spent hours watching this, this series. Not probably the best use of my time. But what I've noticed in my searching of these streaming channels that we have is that there are so many documentaries that teach you things. So I, I did a podcast episode on the Blue Zones living to 100. I have taken so much from that, from that series into my daily practice of living. And some of those things could count as a daily spiritual practice. I've modified my diet incredibly. Now, I was doing that anyway with my health coach, with the Get Better Girl. But looking at these people that just live this way naturally, it just always gets me thinking. So I've watched a couple of others. So this morning, I watched one called Minimalist. Less is now. So these two guys, Josh Fields Milburn and Ryan Nicodemus, they're friends. They sort of got this idea that it would be fun to live minimally, to get rid of all this stuff. I think it was triggered by one of their, Ryan's, his mom passed away and he had to go clean out her stuff. And he thought, oh, I have my mom's stuff. I'll keep it all because, you know, it would mean a lot to him. And he started going through things and realized how much stuff she kept. And it got him to thinking, why? Why would she have kept all these things? And very often, it's not the thing that we need, but what the thing represents or an attachment to a memory when we were using the thing or wearing the thing or hanging the thing up on the wall. And so it just set his mind to thinking. And what really got him were these four boxes under her, his mom's bed. And they were full of things from his childhood, pictures, schoolwork, report cards, little movie clip, all sorts of things from his childhood. And he was like, why would she keep all this? And, you know, sort of it's like a photo album. It's memory lane. You document things that you do. But it was more than that. It was four huge boxes. Now, they were taped shut and they had been taped shut for years. So she wasn't opening them up and looking, looking at them. She packed them all away and put them under her bed. And so that part of the show really stuck out for me because so much of Molly's stuff fits this description where I can't get rid of it, but I certainly don't look at it every day. So it got me to thinking. I'm going to watch it again because that, and take notes next time <laughs> because that's sort of how I am. But I wanted to talk about it because a big piece of the grief journey for me has been stuff, just letting go of stuff. So before Molly died, when Gracie and Molly were leaving childhood and entering teenhood, we started really cleaning out their toy rooms. And I remember 2009, so they were six and eight at the time. We were really getting rid of all their baby toys and stuffies and things they really weren't going to play with anymore. We brought them all to this childcare center behind Concord High School called Merrimack Valley Daycare. Boxes and boxes. I filled my car like three times. And it was really cathartic. It made room for the toys that they still played with. And then a couple of years later, we gave away a big dollhouse and a bunch of games. And, you know, we just really started moving it along. And I remember at the time feeling so good about it. And when I look at pictures now of our house before Molly's death, I always picture our house as cluttered and messy, but it, was, it wasn't. It was unbelievably clean. Like my front office was a bit messy because that was me rushing in and out and practicing my typical frantic lifestyle. But our house was beautiful. The room that I'm sitting in now, which is now Jackson, my room, we called it the blue room. And I had all this painted furniture matching and I had set it all up like a beautiful guest room. It was beautiful. And it was your classic guest room that you never really used. But when somebody looked at it, they thought, what a beautiful room in this old house. Then Molly died and suddenly things shifted and began to mean a whole new thing. 
I couldn't throw anything away. I mean, nothing. If Molly sneezed in it, that tissue stayed. And we touched nothing. Our house truly stopped. And the inside of it just stopped. Nothing got thrown away. Lots of things got added in. Nothing got thrown away. And it reminded me of Miss Havisham. She's a Charles Dickens character who was stood up on her wedding day. And she lives the rest of her life in her wedding dress. And the whole ballroom is untouched. The cake disintegrates over the years and the, everything is dusty. And she touched nothing. Her life just stopped. And I remember at the time thinking how creepy that was. Like, why would you live your whole life stuck? And then Molly died. And I realized that sometimes stuck is the one place you feel safe in this one little spot that if you don't move, nothing will change and everything will be okay. And maybe it's not true. The whole time that we were going through the lawsuit, we did nothing. Life was really just treading water. We were spending all of our time reliving Molly's last days and then reliving every mistake we all ever made because that's how lawsuits work. When the lawsuit was settled, that was the summer of 2018, that was when I know for me it was a big shift. That's when I started spiritual mentoring. And that was the first time that Kenny and I got a dumpster. And we went through and we filled it. We filled that dumpster. Now, we mostly did the barn, the upstairs and downstairs of the barn, because that's where things had started to collect. And I remember we, we, there were a lot of things that we were not ready to throw away, and so we didn't. But we threw away what we could, and it was incredibly healing. I remember when the dumpster was taken away, it was the fall. It was right around Thanksgiving, a little before, like October, November. It was really, really helpful and, and cathartic. And that was the first time that we sort of celebrated Thanksgiving. Like it was the beginning of picking up and walking along in life, acknowledging that Molly really was never coming back. It was also, it also preceded finding out I had the brain tumor. So it was almost like purifying, purifying the reality for what was to come next, which was brain tumors and kidney transplants. It's not lost on me that things have meaning. The summer afterwards, 2019, we got another dumpster and this was not as successful at all. We were going to do the attic. It was a lot of up and down. Kenny had had a kidney transplant. I'd had brain surgery, you know, two times. So there was a lot going on. I remember saying to Kenny, look, go upstairs, but only throw away your stuff. And when I came back down, he had thrown away a bunch of my stuff that I didn't want thrown away. And it sort of put a stop in it. And, you know, I used to say, oh, he's just being passive aggressive and he, he doesn't want to do it. So he'll do it wrong so that I'll swoop in and fix it. I also think he was really uncomfortable throwing things away. That half-filled dumpster was carted off. We let it go for a while. Then Jack was born. And now the TV people want to come to our house and do this filming. And so I, I looked around at my house, bins and boxes in a mess. We had done minimal work on the dining room, the little room off the living room. My friend Deb and I had gone through that before my brain surgery to make room for me to sleep down there, but we still had so much stuff. So I called KK, my spiritual mentor. One of the things she used to do was organizing, but it's more than organizing. It's really looking at why we're holding on to things. And so it was expensive. It was not cheap, but it was like three days worth of work transformed my house into a truly livable space that I could easily show people and not feel embarrassed about. The amount of stuff we just put into bins and put into the barn or into the attic to just get them, quote unquote, out of the way. Some of those bins I haven't looked at since then. That was two years ago, two and a half years ago. But what happened was I saw how she looked at things and how she looked at furniture all over the house and repurposed things. Let's take that and put it here. Let's take this and put it there. It's just a teeny way of thinking outside the box in arranging your stuff, right? It was a huge step forward for us. It really was. And I didn't feel like I was dissing Molly, if that makes any sense. So much of grief, especially when you lose a child, is you want to hold on to every bit of proof that they existed. 
you don't want to let go of anything. And and I can remember one of the things I think that really caused me to realize Roy was never going to help me in my recovery with Molly is about a month after she died, he wanted to come up here and clean out the house. We're cleaning it out. We're getting rid of all this. And I couldn't even imagine getting rid of anything. Everything had a meaning and a story like, you know, it's not your stuff to get rid of. It's mine. And I have a million reasons why I think he's like that. But I do know for him, how he focuses and moves on is to pack it up like it never happened and put it away and forget or just make it invisible and create a story around it that, that he can live with. And that's what he's done with us. Perfectly fine. That's, that's how he's succeeding. I look at Kenny and Kenny and I are very similar in that we, we really truly do hold on to things as proof that everything's okay or events. Like I talk a lot about my alcohol use and how having drinks with Kenny is this thing that seems to make him think everything is okay. I just like having drinks with you. Clearly that event is connected to something positive for him in terms of our relationship. It reminds him of a happy time. It doesn't mean that anything is fine. Actually, it's probably a symptom that nothing is fine, but all of this, all of this swirls through my head all the time, how we manage our stuff and move around and how do you live a peaceful life in a cluttered environment? And that's probably the biggest piece in my own healing and moving along with Molly being dead and moving along with all that I lost in that relationship with Roy all of our struggles with Kenny, like when I look at my life and everything I've gone through, none of these things are lost on me. And the attachment I have to things is just as strong as Kenny's attachment to events or Gracie's attachment to her things. Like they all, they all just signify a time when we felt okay about life, when we thought everything was going to be all right. Back to my new morning routine. My new morning routine right now is to find things to watch that will teach me something. And so now there's get organized with the home edit, tidying up, queer eye. Oh my God, I used to love queer eye. Brene Brown does a whole thing on the call to courage, tiny house nation, how you can live in a teeny house. So all of these shows presumably talk about how to call down your stuff, how to get rid of things. So this gets me thinking, how can I bring this into my life? So I have my 2018 dumpster and I have my 2019 dumpster. And now we have, we've had, we're on our third dumpster now. We had another one this past fall ahead of the kitchen reno where we really emptied out our barn again. We filled it up. Our barn collects things. It grows stuff, I swear. And now we have, you know, we have construction dumpsters, but I'm looking at this empty dumpster right now and I'm looking at my house. So I did a walkthrough, a little walkabout after I watched the show and I have bins of stuff everywhere. Now I have bins of things from our kitchen that we binned up because we're remodeling the kitchen. I binned those things up at the end of October. I haven't looked in those bins. It's now February and I haven't used anything in those bins. So what exactly in those bins do I truly need? Probably not a lot. So it got me to thinking, this whole show got me to thinking. So in the past month, taking this month off from coaching and trying really hard to create a workspace in my house, which is a chaotic place on a quiet day, this show seems like it was sort of supposed to happen. Like, okay, here it is, this show on organizing stuff. So I just watched it and, and reflected on what I've been working on the past month. So as I've often said before, Carolina will describe me as an all or nothing. Like if I can't do the whole thing, then screw it. I'm not doing any of it. And I think it's why I do so well with challenges because a challenge is like a complete makeover, but you only do it for a certain amount of time. And I think back to the first time I really lived like this. And it was when I wanted to break five minutes in the mile. And I made a list of things I had to do every day to ensure I would break five minutes in the mile, get in bed by 10 o'clock, you know no partying with my friends. I just had a list of things I did so that I would break five minutes in the mile. 
None of those things are truly scientifically connected to a sub five minute mile, but they were things that made me believe that I could do it, that I had done the preparation work. That's an all or nothing mentality, right? Once I broke five minutes in the mile, I stayed up late again. I partied with my friends, you know, I didn't train as much because I'd achieved the goal. So in looking at January and, you know, sometimes feeling really crappy about it because, you know, I, I gave up coaching. So all I did was give up income and I've gained weight and I've drank a lot and I've only minimally done any sort of reorganizing. So, you know, the self-hatred has been at a high level. I walked around my house this morning, noticing an office full of bins, a front hall full of bins, a garage full of stuff. And it, my initial reaction is to be overwhelmed. Like, oh. So then I sort of review January specific to this. And so what I've done at the advice of Carolina is to just do one thing a day, one little bit a day. Yesterday, I took all the two men bins with Molly B stuff, the Molly B tree, and I added them to the bins of Molly stuff that are up in Kenny's room right now along this empty wall. There's already several bins there. It made sense to put them there. Now they're out of my office. So it was a five minute task. However, it created a space which will now make the next task that much easier. I restacked some bins in the front hall and reorganized shoes and boots and things. So now the front hall has room for another bin should I decide to put one there. Now, notice I'm not really going through the bins and emptying them yet, but I've done that a little bit as well. One of my other morning routines that didn't involve yoga and meditating, although I'm reflective when I do it, is emptying bins. Pick up a bin, go through it, throw away what I can. Pick up another bin, go through it, throw away what I can. Combine those things, I've now made two bins into one. Again, it's this tedious, slow process, but it works for me. It makes the process seem easier. So back to the show. These two friends did it completely, completely differently. So Ryan went like I was doing, sort of bin by bin, went through things. It took him a long time to go through everything, like a month or a month and a half, maybe two months. So his friend Josh didn't want to do it that way. So his friend Josh packed up his entire apartment, packed everything as if he were moving, labeled things really well, spent the whole day packing up his apartment, then lived for a couple of days sleeping on the floor and ordering pizza. And then thought, okay, what do I need? What do I really need? Well, I need a table and chairs. And so we set up the table and chairs. Oh, I need kitchens. I need kitchen stuff. And he just took the kitchen stuff that he know he used all the time and reset that up. So it took him about a month, ultimately the same amount of time it took Ryan to go through all of his mother's stuff and his stuff. And at the end of a month, he realized that 80% of what he had in those boxes, he hadn't taken out of the boxes. He didn't even notice that he wasn't using it. Just clutter. So I was talking to Gracie about it when she came down to eat and she acknowledged right away, first thing, yeah, but mom, I, I, every time I try to do it, I just, I can't let it go because it reminds me of something. So sometimes decluttering and minimalizing isn't letting go of every little thing. Sometimes it's taking the things you can't let go of, putting them in a safe spot and putting them out of sight. Because six months later, half of that bin might be something you can let go of. And this is the process I've noticed with us in the dumpsters. The second time we got a dumpster and went through the barn, we were able to throw away a ton of stuff that six months prior or a year prior were off the table in terms of throwing away. It's like you have to get to it. You have to look at it. You have to remember it. You have to process it. And then you can let it go. I did a massive bathroom clean yesterday. And this was before watching the show. And I just went through, you know, we didn't touch the upstairs bathroom in Molly's toothbrush. Everything just stayed where it was because I didn't, I didn't want it to change. I wanted it to be the way it was the last time she was in there which of course she was puking all night long. But, but little by little, every time we clean it, more stuff can get thrown away. So the only thing out on a counter now 
that was on that counter by the bathtub when Molly was alive is a blue water bottle. And that can stay there forever. It doesn't take up room. It's Molly's water bottle. Molly's water's in it, right? In the medicine cabinet above the toilet, the only thing in there now is some calamine lotion. And the reason it's still there is when I look at it, I grin. I remember how Molly, if anyone was going to get bit by 12 mosquitoes, it was Molly. <laughs> if anyone was going to have a tick, it was Molly. If anyone was going to get poison ivy, it was Molly. And so I have just a strong, happy memory of the calamine lotion. I mean, the expiration date is like 2011. You know, it's old. However, that used to be full of things that reminded me of Molly. And I've just, over the, over the past couple of years, now I say that, 2018 was when we started this process. That's five years. That's a long time. But you know what? That's the process. So the bathroom now looks way better. So there's that piece of stuff, the attachments. And, and for us, it's a grief process. All of it's a grief process. All we can do is experience that and live in it and move along as quickly as we can. The other side to minimalist living is the ridiculous amount of waste all this crap that we have produces on the planet. We, we use the planet to create stupid plastic things that people buy and never use. Like the amount of stuff that societies like the United States create, you know, thigh masters and, you know, these things you squeeze between your thighs. Okay, why on earth should we take natural resources to create the thigh master? How about you just go out and mow your lawn, right? Like, like when you look at the reason cultures like ours create things, it's all for money, capitalism. Let's make some money off people that think this will make their thighs skinny. Every woman in the world wants skinny thighs. It got me to thinking about how much I've been supporting the Concord High School thrift shop. And you know, the, the main focus of the thrift shop is to give people that don't have money access to really nice stuff. They can go in and take it in a shame-free environment. But the other positive piece of thrifting is the environment. If I'm purchasing things that have already been worn, then I'm not using more natural resources to clothe myself. Now, these one little movements won't affect Amazon and all of the shopping magnates that want, to, want you to spend your money. However, if, if 500,000 people thrifted, that's a lot of people not buying new clothes. So there's that piece of the thrifting piece. So I'm always looking for ways to raise money for the Molly B Foundation. And I remember we had all this furniture in the garage and I put it all out there and everything was $50, everything. And every donation went to the Molly B Foundation. You want this couch? 50 bucks. You want this bike? 50 bucks. You want this living room set? 50 bucks. Like everything, it was just easy that way. I got rid of a ton of stuff. I made about $500 for the Molly B Foundation. And all of those items are being used by somebody that is, you know, it's better than sitting in my garage taking up space. I start my day as if I had 10 minutes of yoga and meditation. Notice how snarky I am when I say it. And I'm, my 50 morning prayers and all my gratitude, blah, 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 blah. I get it. All of that's important. But I have manifested all of that in myself by watching these two guys really face all of their experiences in life and what brought them to think this was a good idea, living minimally. The final thing I'll share is a girl I used to coach named Austin. She and her husband have three kids. All of them are under five. And they just decided that city living with all the stuff they owned and all the bills they paid was just not for them. And so they've taken a year, I think, I don't even know how long, to travel the world with their kids. They can both work remotely, so they each have work time. So finances are managed. They sold a bunch of their stuff. They sort of sold off most everything they owned and that gave them income and money. And they're traveling the world and they're not just going to like swanky touristy places. Right now they're in Vietnam, completely learning about an entirely different culture that most people in America have really negative opinions towards anything Southeast Asian. 
my God, the beautiful places in Asia. Can't even wrap my head around it. So they're doing this amazing thing with their three little kids. They're traveling the world. They're living in other cultures. They're schooling their kids. They're not just being tourists. They're really, really living in the culture, which means they only have with them what they can carry. So they wear the same clothes over and over again. They play with the same toys. And when they get bored with the toys, they give those away and get something new to replace it. They can't add to what they have. They have a limited amount of space in which to live. All of this is just sort of circulating in my head and looking at ways to simplify my life. So is, is this my next thing? You know, a 75 hard and, you know, the get better girl. Well, maybe it is. Maybe minimalist living is my next thing. Maybe less is now is my next thing. But I believe sometimes that the universe presents to us exactly what we need. My friend Taylor says that all the time. <laughs> We're shown what we need all the time. Whether or not we act on it is up to us. There's a challenge called, it's just the 30-day challenge. And, and there's an app for it, of course, and there's a website and all this sort of stuff. So I'll just share it with you. And what I like about it is you don't have to do it every single day in a row. Like day one could be Tuesday and maybe you can't get to it until Saturday. So Saturday's day two, right? It could be all done in 30 days, but it doesn't have to be. So basically find a friend, a family member or a coworker who's willing to minimize their stuff with you next month. So basically it's like an accountability buddy. You get someone to do it with you. So I think what I might do is just see if Kenny and Gracie would do it. So you just, on the first day, you each get rid of one thing. So, you know, you start small. Like I could get rid of, you know, a pair of boots. I'll donate them to the thrift shop. There, I've gotten rid of something, day one. So day two, you get rid of two things, all the way up to day 30. So today is the 5th of February, and we leave in exactly 19 days on vacation. So we could do 19 days worth of this. Then we're on vacation, so it's kind of hard to give stuff away when you're on vacation. But when we come back, we could just pick up where we left off. I love these kinds of things. Old Barb would have said, nope, I can't start until we get back from vacation because I'm going to interrupt the 30 days. New Barb says, it's all right. We can just do, do 19 days. It's better than no days and pick it up when we get back. And so they make a list of things to get rid of. And some of them are easy at first. For me, it would need to be, I need to choose things I'm not attached to. So there's collectibles, decorations, kitchenware, electronics, furniture, bedding, clothing, towels, tools. These are all things that could go. I walk around the house all the time looking at things that could go. Clothing is a huge one. And so Gracie and I, I think are going to start from there. So, I mean, one item, probably I would say one item would be a bag of clothes. <laughs> Although if there's 50 items in the bag, is that 50? Who knows? It's just a challenging game that gets a little bit harder as you go along. And that's what it says. Each, it's an easy game at first. Anyone can purge a few items, but it grows considerably more challenging by week two. Now you got to get rid of 12 things in one day, right? So there are a lot of ways to look at that. Like, is a set of dishes one thing or is it the number of things in the set? So I just felt compelled to share this for a couple of reasons. Number one, if you're a grief person, if you're in grief or trauma, if you have something in your life that stopped your life for a while, there's a chance, there's a big chance that you hold on to things like I do, that they mean something so I can't let it go. I'll give you an example for Gracie. She started CrossFit after Molly died and she that was a huge life-saving choice for her. And so she has all these CrossFit shirts that she'll never wear again. She doesn't like that style anymore. They don't fit right. But every time she goes to donate them or throw them away, she'd get, no, I can't, I can't, I can't. So what do we do about something like that? Those could be something that she could put in a bin and put away. And maybe in six months from now, when she hasn't opened a drawer and looked at them every day, she'll realize, okay, I haven't even thought about these. I don't need them. Choose one that you like, and then the rest can go. So lots of those things come up. And that's the grief and the trauma piece. The other thing that came up for me was people that are hoarders. So I have a couple of relatives who have really, really, really 
bad hoarding tendencies. I mean, not only keeping what they have, but going out looking for things to bring back home, to add to their collection of stuff. And, and it's really easy. It's a lot like drug addicts. It's easy to get mad at a drug addict or an alcoholic. Yeah, well, if you just made better choices. But something happens along the line where the choice is no longer possible anymore. And that's why alcoholism, alcoholism and drug addiction is such a tricky thing because so many of the symptoms are behavioral. Hoarding is no different. It's really easy to get angry at a hoarder because their house is unlivable and you can't live like this. And what are you doing? And what are you creating? What's going on? And and then the hoarders themselves are very defensive. There's a TV show, Hoarders, and I, I used to love watching it. Not because I you know, wanted to sort of laugh or judge the hoarders, but because I le always learned something, psychologically speaking, with every episode. And there was a time where I watched through our house, sort of before I had KK come and realized that anyone that came in here would see that every single room, except the ones we actually live in, are full of stuff. They're just big, giant closets. So- in my self-flagellation over how January was so unsuccessful for me, and in my desire to make February more meaningful and action-packed, by the time you hear this, I'll be several days into it, but I'm really excited to just every day pick up two or three things and find a new place for them, either in the garbage, in the big orange dumpster in my yard, or at the thrift store at Concord High, or at Savers, or put it online, ask for a Molly B Foundation donation, so many ways that I can minimize the amount of stuff in my house, right? It was just such a profound thing for me. So I don't know if you guys all watch Netflix, but this would be a fun, it's just one episode, 53 minutes, that's it. And these guys, they do a good job narrating it. You get a little bit of their psychology and what their lives were like as children and sort of how they're using their minimalist mindset to make the world a better place. It's really, really cool. I would love to hear things that you hold on to and what your journeys and processes are around stuff. Because I don't know, sitting here on February 5th, as I record this podcast, I have a level of excitement that I haven't had for a long while. And it's all around getting rid of stuff. <laughs> Who knows? Purging, right? Maybe maybe it's the, it's the equivalent of purging. Anyway, I'm excited about it. And I hope that you are too. Be good to yourself. Always be good to yourself and find new ways to do that. Be good to someone else. It's always important to be kind to others. And as always, have a good day, everybody. Hey, thanks for listening and supporting the podcast. Feel free to leave a review and share my stories with your friends. Please reach out with your own stories as I love connecting with my listeners. If you would like to get to know Molly, head over to mollybfoundation.org to see what she is all about. If you want to see what I'm up to next, you can find me on Instagram at barb underscore 444 on Facebook as Barb Higgins, and at my website, a thousandtinysteps.com. And while you're there, sign up for my newsletter, a weekly way to find out what's up in the life of Barb Higgins.